If you would, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. As we continue on in the book of Genesis this morning, we'll be in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, particularly, uh, this morning we'll be considering uh, verses 8 through 15 of Genesis 3. So, Genesis 3, beginning in verse 8. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, last week we considered these opening verses of Genesis 3, and we saw how Satan tempted Eve and deceived her, led her into sin. We saw subsequently how Eve led her husband into sin. And we considered from this the, the nature of temptation. We tried to think about how to overcome temptation. Now, here this morning in verses 8 through 15, we see the immediate effects of the fall. We see guilt and shame. We see a failure to take responsibility. We see the introduction of the curse. But in the midst of all of those bad things, there is also an announcement of good news. And so as we consider verses 8 through 15 this morning, we'll do so under under three main headings. First, the hiding Secondly, the blame shifting. And thirdly, the curse containing the gospel. The hiding, the blame shifting. And thirdly, the curse containing the gospel. On the day that Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes were open. Satan had told them that it would be so, and so it was. But there was a catch. Their eyes were open not opened in a good way, but in a bad way. They had received the knowledge of good and evil, but as someone rightly expressed it, Adam had come to the wrong kind of knowledge of good and evil. God knows good and evil by absolutely loving the good and by absolutely hating the evil. But man had come to know good and evil by actually experiencing evil and thereby himself becoming evil. And by this time, Adam and Eve knew. They recognized that a change had taken place. They began to feel the guilt 
and the shame. This was indicated in verse 7 with the, the knowledge that they knew that they were naked, but the fig leaves were an insufficient covering. Such a covering was insufficient to cover their bodies and certainly insufficient to cover the guilt and the shame that they had brought on their souls by sin. And this is why it is said in verse 8 that when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now, we understand, of course, that God is a spirit and God does not have a body as we do and therefore does not walk as you and I walk. And so whether we take this as uh, anthropomorphic language, which is to say a, a figure of speech that attributes to God human characteristics in order to communicate something to us about God, or whether we take this as an actual theophany, the appearance of God in human form, as we sometimes see in the Old Testament narrative. However we want to take this uh, truth of the Lord God walking in the garden, the point is clear. And that is that the Lord God had drawn near to the garden where the man and the woman were, who were made in his image. The Lord God is approaching his people, and his people run away and hide from him. They knew that he was coming. They knew also that they could not stand before him. They heard him coming, and therefore they hid themselves. And then the dialogue ensued. The Lord God called out to the man, where are you? It's not that the Lord did not know. It wasn't that the Lord needed information that he did not already have. He knew where the man was. He knew what the man had done. This rather was a summons extended to the man that he might come before the Lord and confess what he had done. But the man was not willing to come and not willing to confess. Adam said that he was hiding because he was naked. He had never felt the need to hide from the Lord before, even though before he had been naked. But now he felt that he needed to hide because he was naked. Well, why now? Well, the true answer is that Adam was guilty of breaking the Lord's commandment and therefore was now fearful of facing the Lord. The physical nakedness was a token of his inward spiritual nakedness, the nakedness of his soul. And we should note that this scene that we observe here in verse 8, this guilt and shame which our first parents felt, which resulted in them hiding away from the presence of the Lord when he came to them, this is a scene which will be repeated again. It is a scene which will be repeated by their final descendants who are on the face of the earth on the last day when our Lord Jesus Christ comes. And so we're told in Revelation 6, 15 through 17, how at the return of Christ, the kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong, every slave and free man will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they will say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Our first parents hid themselves because of their sin when the Lord came to them. And so it will be at that last day, with that last generation of their descendants. But that last generation will find to their horror what our first parents discovered here in Genesis 3, that there is no hiding from the Lord. Fig leaves and trees cannot hide us from the Lord, and neither can rocks and mountains. The fact of the matter is what we find in Hebrews 4.13. 
that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Adam and Eve tried to hide, but could not successfully do so. The final generation will try the same and have the same result. And how many of us in between have done the same thing and have had the same result? All attempts will end the same way. There is no creature hidden from his sight. I don't know about you if you are trying to hide from God today. Maybe you feel guilty and ashamed because of what you have done and you know that you cannot stand before God because of what you have done. You know that you can't stand before God in your current condition. Now, if that's you this morning, you're probably partially right and partially wrong. If you think that you can't stand before God as a guilty sinner, you're right. You can't. If you think that you actually can hide from God, you're wrong. You can't. But I want you to know this morning, if that's you, if you're kind of hiding from God, I want you to know that despite the guilt and despite the shame, there is hope. There's hope to be found in Jesus Christ. And so if you find yourself in the position this morning where you're hiding from God, I want you to keep listening. We'll talk about this hope more as we, as we go along this morning. So much for the hiding. It didn't work. It was a fool's errand and was doomed to failure. And it remains so because there is no creature hidden from the Lord's sight. But the Lord's questioning continues, and now the blame shifting begins. And this is our second point, which is the blame shifting. Adam had said that he was naked. Now, this had never been a problem before. There had been no shame and no awareness of it before. So why was it a problem now? The Lord asked him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? As implied by the question, Adam's sense of shame at his external nakedness had arisen from his shame at having eaten from the tree. And the two things here were connected. And to this day, public exposure of ourselves, public nakedness is a shameful thing. Modesty is important. This chapter makes it clear that Adam and Eve needed to be clothed, and so do we to this day. Now, since Adam can no longer hide, he must answer. He's found by the Lord. There's no hiding from the Lord. He has to answer. But he answers by pointing his finger, right, instead of taking responsibility to himself. Adam's response was not, yes, I have sinned. Yes, I am guilty. Please forgive me. His response was rather to put the blame on the woman. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. In other words, don't blame me. It was her. It's her fault. She gave it to me. And though Adam primarily points the finger at Eve, he may also, in a way, be attempting to blame God himself, in that he doesn't simply say that the woman gave it to him. Rather, he says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. He's saying, God, you gave me this woman to be my helper. And look at what she did. If she hadn't been here, this would not have happened. If you had not given her to me, this would never have occurred. And so, God, in a way, this is, this is actually your fault. It's not just Eve's fault, it's your fault. And when the Lord questions the woman, 
Neither does she give a straight-up confession and acknowledge her guilt either. Just like Adam, she puts the blame somewhere else. She says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now let's notice something here in all of this blame shifting. There is, we ought to notice, some truth in what both Adam and Eve said in their response to the Lord. Right? It was certainly true that the woman gave the fruit to her husband. That's true. The text of Genesis 3 is clear about that. And it is also clear that it is true that the serpent deceived Eve and she ate. Those statements are true. But that's not the point. And those responses, therefore, are insufficient. Those responses are insufficient because by means of them, both Adam and Eve are failing to own up to their own wickedness that they have done. They're failing to take responsibility for their sin. They're failing to honestly confess it to the Lord and failing, therefore, to seek mercy from His hands. And there is an application here for us in this. There is always, or at least almost always, a way for us to point the finger at somebody else instead of taking responsibility for our own sins. We can blame our parents for our upbringing, and so that accounts why I have such a problem with anger. That's why I have such a poor work ethic. That's why I have such a problem with bitterness. We can blame our spouse for their neglect. So that's why I unplugged from the marriage. That's why I had the affair. We can blame our children for their naughtiness. And so that accounts for the way that I respond toward them. We can blame the church. I got hurt by the church, so I don't go anymore. Don't go anywhere. I can do better serving God on my own. We can blame the knife manufacturers. If they hadn't made the knife, I would not have committed the murder. We can blame the liquor store. If they hadn't sold the alcohol, I wouldn't have been out drunk driving causing chaos, death, and destruction. And on and on it goes. And this is the same kind of thing that happened all the way back there at the beginning in the garden. And notice again that there may be an element of truth in every one, every single one of those blame-shifting scenarios. Sure, your parents weren't perfect, and neither is your spouse, and neither are your children, neither is your church. Sure, if you had been completely restricted in your access to knives and alcohols, Uh, you would not have used those things in a sinful way. There may be truth in all of that. But that's not the point. There's almost always someone that you can blame for your failures and your sins. The, The victim mentality that is so prominent today is really nothing new. Now, in saying that, let me be absolutely clear. and I want to be very clear about this. And that is that we all need to understand that there are such things as real victims. That is to say, someone who, through no fault of their own, has been sinned against and harmed in some way. There are real victims, and we need to understand that. There are people who, in their particular circumstance, did nothing wrong. And wrong and evil was done to them. And therefore, people in that situation should not be made to feel guilty at all because of the sin that was done to them. There are real victims, and they deserve our compassion, our sympathy, and our help as we are able to give it. And so we need to be clear about that. But with that said, the problem is that so often people who are not real victims, that is, people who are culpable because they willingly participated in culpable acts, that is to say, willingly participated in sins, want to claim the victim status. They did something wrong, 
and they want to get themselves off the hook, and they do it this way, by pointing the finger, by passing the blame. And maybe it's true. Maybe there were other culpable actors involved in that sin that was committed. But it misses the point. And the point is this, that we are all responsible human agents. And when we do something we should not have done, the right response is not to point fingers, to see who we can blame, to see who else we can take down with us, or to see who we can get to take the fall for us. The right response is to own up to it, to take responsibility for what we have done and not just point fingers and act like this is all someone else's fault. The reformer Wolfgang Musculus commented on Adam's behavior here and said, We see here that the disposition of the flesh is not only that of a sinner, but also a liar, and that not before other people, but also before God, who is the knower of our hearts and of all secrets. He does not have the courage to strip off his disgrace and guilt all at once, but instead he utterly disguises it for as long as he can. Yet he doesn't know that it is impossible for him to be freed from the disturbance and commotion in his miserable conscience so long as he continues to disguise and cover up his sin. Indeed, just as a wound one has received cannot be healed as long as the pus is hidden inside has not been expelled, so the mind of a sinner cannot be rendered tranquil and at peace unless the guilt that bites and gnaws from within is taken away by a full confession of sin. Those words are true. We can't be healed of our guilt and shame if we're unable and unwilling to acknowledge it and confess it and turn away from it. David knew, as we sang this morning in Psalm 32, David knew what it was like when he kept silent about his sin. It wasn't pretty. He said, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was sapped as in the fever heat of summer. If we desire to be healed from guilt that's brought on to us by our sin, if we desire to be reconciled with God, we need to take our cue from David. David went on to say in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. This is the way forward when we find ourselves in sin, is to openly acknowledge it, to confess it, to repent of it, to seek forgiveness from the Lord. There is mercy and grace for all who come to the Lord in that way. And as our text goes on here in Genesis 3, what we find is that the way by which this forgiveness comes, the way of salvation, is first announced by the means of a curse. Salvation and judgment go hand in hand. This brings us then to our third point for this morning, which is the curse containing the gospel. And we'll be spending most of our time for the sermon here under this, under this third point, the curse containing the gospel. And so in the, the aftermath of all of the, uh, the blame shifting that had taken place here, the Lord God speaks to the serpent in verses 14 and 15. Now on the one hand, I think there is an element of this curse that is directed toward the literal earthly serpent in that he had been Satan's instrument by which he had deceived the woman and therefore he 
was cursed of God. Some interpreters in uh, looking at this liken the, the situation to, a, uh, to that of a father who upon the murder of his son was not only uh, intent upon rendering unto the murderer the penalty for his crime, but also wanted to destroy the weapons of murder uh, by which his son was murdered. And so the Lord says, Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and thus you will eat all the days of your life. And there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's descendants and the woman's descendants. And some, some of the older expositors, I don't know if uh, modern expositors could pull this off or not, but at least some of the older ones pointed out how women especially are fearful of snakes. Matthew Poole described the serpent by saying, This serpent, and for his sake the whole seed or race of serpents, which of all creatures are most loathsome and terrible to mankind, and especially to women. The human response to snakes, and in particular the common female response to snakes, may be more than simply a yuck factor. Our sense of revulsion toward snakes may be much more deeply rooted in Genesis 3 than we might first think. But that's a small portion of what's going on here. We'd be most mistaken if we limited the curse here to the instrument by which Satan deceived the woman and assumed that the curse did not reach to Satan himself. This curse does reach to Satan himself. Satan is called the serpent of old in passages like Revelation 12, 9, Revelation 20, verse 2, and thus he too is addressed here under the name of serpent. When God cursed the serpent, he was not merely cursing snakes, he was also cur- cursing Satan himself. Look at, look at verse 15. The Lord says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now obviously, Satan is unable to have literal offspring. But he does have spiritual offspring. John the Baptist spoke of the Pharisees and Sadducees and called them a brood of vipers. Jesus spoke to his opponents in John 8:44 and said to them, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Likewise, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, Matthew 13, 38, Jesus says the tares are the sons of the evil one. So Satan doesn't have literal offspring, but he does have spiritual offspring. And as verse 15 says, there is an enmity that is placed between the serpent and the woman, between her seed and his seed. There is going to be a division in humanity, which in the terms of verse 15 can be divided up into the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And Lord willing, as we move on through Genesis, we'll see this very thing playing itself out in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. Abel is described by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 23, 35 as righteous Abel. John tells us, however, that Cain was of the evil one. 1 John three twelve. Indeed, John speaks more broadly and says in 1 John 3, 8 that the one who practices sin is of the devil. There's a division in humanity, a division even among the literal sons of Adam and Eve, one who was righteous, one who was of the evil one. And there is 
an enmity between these two groups of humanity. And this continues on in this day and will continue on until the end of the age. So there's an enmity also between the serpent and the woman. Right? Satan is now the deadly enemy of Eve. Eve is now the enemy of Satan. And then there's enmity between the seeds of both. Now, sometimes Satan attacks the seed of the woman personally, and sometimes he uses the instrumentality of others. In other words, the instrumentality of his seed to attack the seed of the woman. And isn't this, in fact, the very thing that we saw in our New Testament reading uh, from Revelation chapter 12? If you think back to that, that reading that our brother Mark did from, from Revelation chapter 12, right there at the beginning, John saw this sign in heaven. There was a, a woman who was clothed with the sun and, and the moon under her feet. And this, this woman, broadly speaking, represents the, the people of God. And this harkens back to the, the visions of, of Joseph in Genesis 37, in which he saw the sun and the moon and, and the 11 stars bowing down to him. And when Jacob rebuked Joseph for the dream, uh, Jacob provided an interpretation for the dream. He said, Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? So the sun and the moon represented Jacob and his wife. The 11 stars represented Joseph's brothers. And then the 12 stars that John saw in the woman's crown would, would seem then to be representative of the 12 patriarchs, all 12 of the brothers, Joseph included. And so the, the woman then is, is the people of God or, or Israel. And it's borne out further in, in Revelation 12 by, by what follows. She, she gives birth to a male child, a male child who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And this male child was kept safe. This male child was caught up to God and his throne. This is kind of a thumbnail sketch, if you will, of the ministry of our, our Lord Jesus Christ, that he ascended to the Father when his earthly ministry and work was complete. And then Satan in his malice went after the woman. The woman was persecuted by Satan, but she was kept safe by the power of God. And her children then are identified in Revelation 12, 17 as those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And Satan went after them as well. Revelation 12, 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children. We have in Revelation 12 is a picture there of the, the enmity between the serpent and the woman and between the seed of each. This is why the godly have been persecuted in various ways throughout human history, from the murder of Abel at the hands of Cain to the martyrdom of Nigerian Christians at the hands of Boko Haram in the present time. This is the reason why Paul can say in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's because of the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's because the dragon is enraged at the woman and makes war with her offspring, that is, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And my friends, all of us who are in Christ can't expect to be the recipients of this enmity. It may show itself in various ways, but we better expect it because it's there. This is, this is the situation now in a fallen world. But this general enmity between the woman and the serpent and between the seed of each 
as described in the first part of the verse. Notice how it becomes particularized in the final portion of verse 15, verse 15 where the Lord says, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. He says, He shall bruise you on the head. There is a particular he who is the seed of the woman to whom this verse applies in particular. There's a collective seed of the woman, the people of God, and there is a particular seed of the woman. Just as there is a particular child of the woman in Revelation chapter 12, and there are other children of the woman, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. This particular he of Genesis 3.15 is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, John speaks of Christ, 1 John 3.8, by saying, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Christ came, to destroy the works of the devil. There would be the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, and the Son of God would appear to destroy the works of the devil. And how would this come? He would be born. It's through the birth of children. And therefore, Paul says those remarkable words in 1 Timothy 2.15, as the, the ESV translates it, yet she will be saved through childbearing. It's a very, on the surface, a very odd thing for, for Paul to say, a woman being saved through childbearing. But if you, if you follow Paul's argument in 1 Timothy 2, the she of whom Paul is speaking, 1 Timothy 2.15, uh, was the woman that he had just spoken of in the previous verse, and the woman was the Eve that he had spoken of in 1 Timothy 2.15. She, the woman, Eve, will be saved through childbearing. The fact that the verb is in the passive demonstrates that Eve is not saving herself. She is saved by someone else. And the fact that the verb is in the future tense points forward from the time of Eve to the time at which the Redeemer, the Savior, would come. From what does Eve need to be saved? She needs to be saved from the fact that she fell into transgression. And how is Eve saved from her fall into transgression? By the grace of God, in that he promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And how is the seed of the woman brought into the world to accomplish salvation? The seed is brought into the world through childbearing. And therefore, one writer summed it up well by saying, Eve brought herself into transgression. But by fulfilling her role, difficult as it may be as the result of sin, she gives birth to the Messiah, and thereby she brings salvation into the world. Now certainly Eve did not physically and literally herself give birth to our Lord Jesus Christ, but as Genesis 3.20 reminds us, she, the woman, was called Eve because she's the mother of all living. Eve led the way in plunging her, her husband and us into sin. She was the first. But thanks be to God that that is not the end of the story. She will be saved through childbearing. It is through her giving birth to children and those women who descended from her giving birth to children and so on that the Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, was brought into the world. And thus we have here in Genesis 3.15 what is sometimes called the Proto-Evangelion, the first announcement of the gospel it is an announcement of victory, that someone proceeding from the woman would deal out a mortal blow upon the serpent. And indeed, our Lord Jesus Christ has done that very thing. 
And so Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. The Son of God, born of the woman, came to destroy the works of the devil. And he dealt that death blow to Satan by dying on the cross and then rising again from the grave three days later. And that blow to the head will be fully realized when Christ returns and is cast to eternal perdition. And the prophetic words of Romans 16.20 will then be fulfilled, where Paul says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is a great victory, but it comes at a great cost. It comes at the cost of the death of the seed of the woman, the death of Christ. The serpent had its strike against Christ. We see that there in the text. You will bruise him on the heel. But, as indicated here in the text, the blow which Satan lands upon the seed of the woman is not equal to the blow which the seed lands upon him. Satan's blow landed on the heel. A blow to the heel is obviously less significant than a blow to the head. Christ's heel was bruised by Satan at his crucifixion. Inasmuch as Christ was God, Satan could not touch him, but inasmuch as he was man, Satan could and did afflict him. Even near the onset of his ministry, Satan tempted him. And we know that at the end of those three temptations, Satan was not done vexing Jesus because we're told in Luke 4.13 that when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And when the opportune time came, Satan came back with a vengeance. It was Satan who put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Christ, as we find in John 13.2. And on the cross, we might say there was a literal fulfillment of the bruising of Christ's heel, inasmuch as the feet of our Lord were nailed to the cross. And though the blow to Jesus was mortal in respect to his human body, thanks be to God, it was only temporary. Our Lord Jesus Christ has the power of an indestructible life, as we find in Hebrews 7.16. Or as he said it in John 10.18, he has the authority to lay his life down, he has the authority to take it up again. And he did take it up again when he rose from the dead on the third day, at which time he was declared to be the Son of God with power. Now we need to observe here the kindness and the love of God in this. This is a promise that is purely of grace. The covenant of works, which we considered a few weeks ago back in uh, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, had been broken. Adam had sinned, and the wages of sin is death. And the Lord God owed nothing to Adam at this point. In violating the commandment, Adam became, on that very day, dead in sin, spiritually dead. Though his body didn't physically die that day, yet he became physically liable to death on that day. He became mortal on that day. And were he to die apart from receiving the gracious promise of God in faith, he would have passed to eternal death. God owed nothing to Adam. God could have put them to death right there, sent them to hell on the spot, and it would have been perfectly just. But God is not only just, he is also most merciful as well. And we see that shining through here in verse 15. And we see it because 
even though God would have been perfectly just to have wound up the show right then, God did not do that. In cursing Satan, God made a promise that the earthly and temporal life of the man and the woman would continue. If there was going to be any offspring of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, then Adam and Eve had to live long enough to have offspring. And thus, though they had become mortal because of their sin, nevertheless, their earthly lives were not going to come to an end that day because there was going to be a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. Not only would their earthly lives be prolonged, but God promised that there would be a spiritual victory, a victory over Satan. This is a victorious promise and a great one. But we need to note that this proto-evangelion, this first promise of the gospel, is only the gospel in seed form. This is not the full flower of the gospel. Adam and Eve are not given the specifics on how this was all going to be worked out. They were not told in these words of substitutionary atonement. They were not told that this particular seed would be the Son of God come in the flesh. They were not told that the seed would die and rise again on the third day, and so on. So there are a lot of details that the Lord did not give them on that day. But nevertheless, they were spared immediate death. They were told that they would have descendants, and they were told that one of those descendants would achieve a victory over the serpent. Even with a lot of the details left out, even still, this is good news. All was not lost, and God would be glorified by his creation. He would be glorified by a display of his mercy. We're told in Psalm 106, verses 7 and 8, that uh, about the generation of the Israelites that came out of Egypt. And this is what the psalmist said. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. And do we not see that same thing here? The same type of scenario. Genesis 3 that's described there in Psalm 106. Just like the Israelites, Adam and Eve did not remember the abundant kindnesses of the Lord. Just like the Israelites, Adam and Eve rebelled against the Lord. But still, nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Likewise, we find those words in Isaiah 44 that we read in our unison reading this morning, verses 22 and 23. The Lord says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. What this means is that God is glorified in the salvation of sinners, that he's glorified in a display of his mercy toward the unworthy. And my friends, that's us. That is certainly us. Again, it would have been perfectly just for the Lord to have killed Adam and Eve on the spot and judged them. But yet, nevertheless, he showed mercy to the undeserving. He chose to glorify himself, not only in his justice, the justice of cursing the serpent, and the justice of cursing the seed of the serpent, but he also chose to glorify himself in showing mercy, forgiving sinners through the victory of his son. So the serpent 
is cursed. He is crushed through the victory of Christ. Now the question this morning then is this. Whose side are you on? There are, in the final analysis of things, only two groups of people. In the terms of Genesis 3, there's the seed of the serpent. There is the seed of the woman. In the words of Jesus, Matthew 13, he says, there are the sons of the kingdom, sons of the evil one. Or Matthew 25, there's the sheep and the goats. There are those who have seen the havoc that is caused by sin and have seen their own sin and have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ. And there are those, on the other hand, who follow the world, the flesh, and the devil and continue following the world, the flesh, and the devil. Whose side are you on? There is a cosmic spiritual battle that is raging in the world, and we all are participants in it. Though the people of God suffer in this world and often appear to be defeated, that is not the reality. And though the ungodly seem often to triumph in the world, their apparent victory will be short-lived. Those who continue on as such, those who continue on as ungodly, will find themselves begging the mountains and the rocks to hide themselves from Christ at his return. The reality is that Christ the Lord has dealt the death blow to Satan by his cross and resurrection, and that mortal wound will bleed out, as it were, when Christ returns in glory and victory and sends Satan away to eternal perdition. And when that happens, the God of peace will have finally crushed Satan under our feet. And on that day it will be clear for all to see that Christ's people are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It will be clear for all to see that God is glorified not only in his justice and judgment, but also glorified in mercy. And therefore, in the meantime, I beg all of you to be reconciled to God. I beg all of you, in the words of Psalm 2, to kiss the Son, that is the Son of God, and take refuge in him. And the only way to do that is by believing in Christ, turning away from your sins, finding forgiveness and reconciliation with God through him. Whose side are you on? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which convicts us of hiding, convicts us of passing the blame when we need to own up and take responsibility for our sins. Father, we are thankful that the serpent is cursed, that your enemy and our enemy will be finally crushed and cast away forever. We're thankful for the way by which this is accomplished, the work of Christ, by which not only is Satan defeated, but also people are saved. We praise you for your great plan of salvation, which is worked out for us in Christ. Lord, we pray that each of us would be on your side, that we would turn from sin, that we would cling to Christ in faith. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen.